The U.S. is, is the most similar thing I've ever seen to Bitcoin. And Ethereum is more like Europe. Europe what is Israel now? I, I tell we're like Doge. Yeah. And in newspapers, you read the real news. Bitcoin is king and Ethereum is queen. The king dies, that's checkmate, right? Bitcoin is the beginning of the end of the fractional reserve system. Wow, my money is in the bank is not really my money in the bank. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you very much, Strat. We talk endlessly about Bitcoin cycles, what it means for altcoins, what it was like in the past, what's going to happen in the future. Few people have been there for literally every single second of the cycle, every development, and Yoni Asia is one of them. He built eToro before Bitcoin was even invented. He was behind colored coins, which were really the first iteration of altcoins at all. He's literally been there for every single cycle, building through all of it, and has some amazing predictions on what's to come. I'm going to give you a hint. It's much higher prices and the entire world being tokenized. You're one of the probably original OGs in this space of all the original OGs, even to the point where I think people don't know your whole story. I've obviously heard it many times. People always talk about you in passing. But I mean, back to the point of color coins and, you know, really creating the whole altcoin market, everything. I mean, can you talk about how you got into crypto in the first place? Sure. So we started, this is... Do you want to start or we just start? Have at now? it. We're, you just have at it. Go. We're good. <laughs> Boom. So uh, my first sort of glimpse into crypto uh, was actually because I started writing about digital currencies prior to it. And then my I started writing about uh, like the need for a digital currency uh, that actually sort of became the good all after. Um, and then my brother sent me in 2010 a link to Bitcoin saying, hey, this actually sounds like the stuff you're talking about. And I, I, I jumped in, I downloaded the Bitcoin QT, started playing with it, started mining. Um, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. Like, this is how financial services should work 24 7 decentralized and i was like hooked from the the first sort of second i started playing with bitcoin uh and, and mostly excited by the by the fact that it actually works 24 7 because i actually in etoro we founded etoro in 2007 and launched etoro in 2008 uh, and during the global financial crisis i remember like two big things that sort of made me realize how broken the system is one is, you know, we've been trading the FX markets, which are the most liquid markets in the world, euro, dollar, right? So the actual currency, traditional currency markets, and everything just froze. Everything like the APIs to the banks just stopped working. So I'm like, wow, they can actually just plug, like the banks are able to just plug people out of the system, right? Which is like what you see in the movies, where people want to sell shares and they're calling their brokers and the brokers are like, we're not answering. Um, but it happens the same in the currency markets. And then the second part, this was like early stages of eToro, first year of operation. And my and we had no idea because this is like Lehman Brothers collapsing. And you had no idea whether you're going to wake up and the money that you had in the bank is still going to be there 
is it still going to be open tomorrow? And I had investors calling me like, where's the money? Uh, you know, where did you put the money that we invested in Toro? Which banks is it in? Did you diversify it? And that for me was like, wow, my money is in the bank is not really my money in the bank. And the most sort of rudiment part of trading currency, euro dollar, which is supposed to trade 24, five always, doesn't really trade if the banks sort of pull the plug. And, and, and then, you know, when I saw Bitcoin, I'm like, wow, this is like, this is really 24 seven. This really works constantly and doesn't rely on any centralized entity. It's interesting because what you just described just happened again in the United States this year, right? Yeah. Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley Bank, obviously Silvergate. We saw it across the board, Signature Bank where people literally weren't sure until the end of that weekend when the Fed came in with the bazooka and the backstop and said, we're going to backstop all these. People didn't know if the money in the bank was good. And this is 2023, right? You're talking about the great financial crisis of 2008, but we're seeing the same thing again 15 years later. I think it is inevitable that we're going to continue seeing it and that Bitcoin is the beginning of the end of the fractional reserve system, right? So... You know, if you think of how banking works, the fact that most people, probably like 99% of people, maybe now with Bitcoin, it's less, but, you know, historically, people think, hey, I have money, I'm getting paid, I put my dollars or shekels or pounds or euros in a bank, I own that money, that's my money, and it's there. And reality is, one, no, it's not, it's not there, it's something, they lent it to somebody else. Um, and, and no, like, again, today, more and more people understand what's a bank run, but, you know, if everybody in this bank withdraws the money, it's done, the bank's done, right? And then you're basically relying on whatever country you're in on making sure that they actually backstop that process of a bank run. So bank runs are generally inevitable. Um, and I think the other thing that a lot of people are seeing is sort of the controls over your money. I remember one of my friends depositing funds uh, in eToro, and then the bank call, uh, you know, called him and said, hey, eToro does something in crypto as well. This was, I don't know, 2017. And they're like, we are not allowing you the transfer to eToro because it's related to crypto. And he's like, what do you mean you don't allow me to transfer money? This is my money. Let me transfer my money. And he was just, he was going, you know, just a bazooka over them saying like, this is my money. You can't tell me what to do with my money. But I think all around the world, people are seeing this more and more that, you know, they're trying to transfer money from their account somewhere. And it's actually getting much harder to do that simple thing, which is just transfer my money out of my account. Yeah, because it, it's not actually your money. You come to realize it keeps coming up in my podcast conversations, but it has really stuck with me. Those videos of people in Lebanon literally holding up banks to get their own money out, not to rob yep. the bank, <laughs> to get access to their own money, right? It's, uh, you know, people again, the people need, I, I think people need to understand that the money in the banks is not really their money. Um, and certain circumstances, sometimes political, sometimes, you know, the, sometimes it's very specific to a bank, sometimes it's political anti money laundering, uh, or, or for some reason they can't do it and they, and they need to understand it and diversify 
where their money is. A part of that diversification, uh, maybe an ideal part of that diversification is crypto in my view. Crypto investors in the United States face some major challenges. One of them is that there's almost no way to get exposure to the asset class inside of your traditional investment vehicles. The other thing is the taxes. They are absolutely atrocious. What if I told you there was a way to solve both of these problems? Well, there is. And it's with a self-directed IRA from iTrust Capital. Guys, not only can you open a new self-directed IRA and fund it with the limits each year, but you can actually convert over from your 401k, your Roth IRA, any other IRA that you already have, and you can do that tax-free, just transferring over the balance, and then you can go to cash, buy as much Bitcoin as you want, and not pay taxes when you sell it. You absolutely have to try this if you are in the United States. Use the link down below. What are you waiting for? Go take control of your retirement. You've been here 13 years. So are you surprised at where Bitcoin is? Because obviously you understood from the very beginning what the promise of it was, and it's come a very long way in 13 years. Or are you actually in any way disappointed that it hasn't gone farther? Somewhere, I, I, I'd say I'm not surprised. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not surprised where Bitcoin is. Um, and I'm also not disappointed because what I've learned over the past, so I founded eToro in 2007. I've been doing this for 17 years. Um, and our customers from 100 countries can trade stocks and commodities and crypto. And we went into Web3 in 2022. And now we're going into bonds, which is another completely broken uh, system. So I, I've always seen in technology that things take longer than expected. So I fell in love in capital markets in like 97, 98, around the internet, around the dot-com bubble. And I remember seeing these, you know, all of these stories about what can happen and how the internet, and I was like, wow, this internet, this is going to take everything. Everything is going to move to the internet. So I invested in a lot of these companies right? That also went 10x and then afterwards went to zero. And what I've seen there is like techno great technologies, and the intern is a great example of that, uh, They have that huge promise. People understand that promise. There's a cycle of hype where people get excited, but eventually things actually take time. It took probably like, I think it took 15 years for the NASDAQ to reach the peak of 2000. So these cycles take time, technology takes time, technology takes time. And in the case of financial services, I think it, it takes time because of regulation, because how well protected financial services, banks are, the hyper national, hyper local sort of part of that financial services ecosystem. Um, so, so I think when we think of, again, when I saw Bitcoin for the first time, for me, it was, wow, the entire financial services industry needs to move this to this technology. Like, this is how I want to transfer my stocks. I want to transfer my stocks and my currencies and my bank transfers. I want all of that to move as efficiently as Bitcoin. Uh, and that's how we sort of started tokenization back in 2011 with colored coins in 2012. So I, I'm a big believer of all assets become digital, all assets transform into blockchain assets, into public ledgers, uh, or some public, some private, and everything becomes as simple as transferring crypto assets uh, through that technology. But I've also 
been doing fintech for the past 17 years before the term fintech existed and before the term blockchain existed. So uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I sort of learned to become patient and that uh, uh, big things take time. Colored coins have become sort of part of the like lore or antiquity of crypto. And even though you kind of described it was only 12 years ago, most people like myself got in in 2016 or 17 or even in the next cycle, 1920. But I have to imagine that when you came up with the idea of colored coins, you started to build them. That had to be very, very controversial. I mean, we can even see now how the early Bitcoin maxis view altcoins or anything else being built on Bitcoin. So I can't imagine what it was like to be a trailblazer doing that in the very beginning when you were still in the chat rooms, you know, with the original uh, sort of Bitcoin OGs. So, so first, actually, a lot of it is public. So a lot of that, those dialogues were on Bitcoin talk. And actually, there's a Google group, uh, a Google group called Bitcoin X, where you can actually see dialogues. And in my view, you see there the spark of Bitcoin maximalism because Vitalik was an, at that group, right? So we wrote the Colored Coins paper. I, I started writing in Bitcoin talk about colored coins and about the concept of tokenizing real world assets, right? So that was my passion. Still is how do we tokenize gold uh, and euros and dollars, what today is stable coins, and eventually stocks uh, uh, and bonds and everything. So using this technology to actually tokenize real-world assets and create atomic transactions. And when we started writing about this in Bitcoin talk, then Vitalik, I think back then was probably about 18, he actually answered back and said, hey, this is super interesting. Can I participate? He wrote the first web uh, client of uh, the Colored Coins protocol. And there was like a Google group where people were talking about the, the protocol, how to implement this, and, and, and then you actually saw that Vitalik already started thinking about sort of tokenizing like altcoins, right? So I think, I don't remember what was the first dialogue there, but like, okay, let's create another crypto on top of Bitcoin. Or he started talking about maybe we built uh, a new blockchain and the Bitcoin community, the colored coins, Bitcoin community just went like, banana you like you see these toxic like this is blasphemy we should have only one blockchain if we'll have a lot of blockchains uh, a lot of sort of networks then we lose the network effect and that and, and that actually led to the protocol eventually forking to like three or four different directions because everybody like thought that their obviously sort of fork was the ideal fork um, but I think that really started the, the, the process of other blockchains that are more sort of, uh, you know, purposely built for tokenization and for alts eventually. Um, it was a very interesting sort of time between 2012, where we launched the protocol, to 2013, where assets started appearing to, to where we actually built Initoro a, a DEX, a decentralized exchange. Uh, uh, this was like pure hard-coded decentralized exchange on top of the Bitcoin network, but we could do, do atomic transactions on the network to eventually Vitalik sort of forking into Ethereum. And then I, I strictly remember every person I talked to about, and asked about like the Ethereum white paper, 
they were like, this doesn't work. Like, don't don't invest in it. Doesn't make sense. Even when the network started, people like were still telling me like, this doesn't work. Like, this is just you know, it's uh, it's a toy. It's going to break. Um, and the pure sort of Bitcoin community was very toxic versus uh, versus Ethereum very early days in 2015-16. So then. Seeing that evolve into the current altcoin market, obviously, I think you have to be proud, right? Because it was sort of the predecessor to all these things. But then there's also the side of it where because it got so big, we see just these endless useless memes and tokens created with no utility. I mean, literally thousands at a time just with profit. So how do you think we thread the needle, bring it back to the important ethos of actually tokenizing assets and sort of maybe rid ourselves of some of the excess that we've seen? So I think there's a lot of criticism about sort of meme coins and why are there 12,000 crypto assets, or maybe, I don't know, it's probably 20,000 at this point. Um, there's probably 100,000 NFT projects at this point. And people are like, why do we need it? Why do we need it? But I, I would sort of compare that to, you know, being on the internet in 98, 99 and, and sort of, you know, my, my parents' friends were like, why do, you need, why do you need like blogs and people writing shit on the internet? There's newspapers and yeah. in newspapers, you read the real news and you're just reading junk and sort of pictures and BBSs, which is uh, uh, from you know their point of view was bullshit. Um, and, and eventually, you need that sort of you know when you create something that enables a lot of people to create content like the internet. There's a lot of junk content in the internet, right? So eventually, social networks help you organize. Uh, that uh, all of that information or Google helps organize all of that information, but the amount of junk information on the internet is mind blowing, right? But you wouldn't say, oh, the internet is broken because there's so many junk information. If you think of small, medium businesses, just as an example, uh, last time I checked, I think there's like 60 million companies in Europe and the US, right? So there's 60 million. Are people complaining? Why are there so many companies? Because if somebody wants to open a the lemonade shop or a falafel shop and he wants to open an entity, then go ahead and open a company and you open the company and then either it works or doesn't work. You close it. Yes, no. Right. So no, nobody cares. Nobody is asking why are there so many small, medium businesses? Actually, most people think it's a good thing. I think tokenization and crypto assets in general represent a new form of company formation. Um, that company formation still very much lacks to some extent uh, uh, rules and regulation, which are important, right? So governance, uh, um, shareholders, et cetera. I think DAOs potentially fix that over time. Um, but I think... If you think of digital ownership of sort of a company, right, of a group of people trying to do something together, I think it would make sense for, for eventually us to see hundreds of thousands, millions of these formations. And once it's, it gets embedded a bit better into rules, regulations on one end, maybe, and on the other hand, just, you know, DAOs being more effective to make sure that there's treasury and real voting and the definitions of how do you run a DAO, how do you invest in a DAO, 
and really trust the people uh, to, to basically govern it properly, govern the joint pool of money together, then I think it, it makes sense for company formation to become digital. I agree. So where do you think we are on that evolution then? Because obviously that dismisses a lot of things that are just created for fun, right? But when we start talking about DAOs and governments, this is for more serious projects, things that could become really viable companies. The problem with DAOs thus far, obviously, has been that you can buy a larger stake in it, right? It's based on how many coins you own. So you can end up with somewhat of one leader anyways. And also that when price goes down, we've seen them sort of break it down into these uh, Lord of the Flies sort of environments where it's a uh, kill or be killed. So do you think that DAOs can get to the point where they are viable for actually running these very large real world businesses that these could become? I have no doubt it eventually gets there. The question is, you know, how, how do we get from point A to point B? One thing is you really need uh, real money and real money connected to sort of real world uh, uh, rails, right? So one of the biggest problems in a DAO right now is you can have USDT or USDC, but USDT and USDC still have their own risks. It's not really money you can use. Second is you can't connect a DAO into a bank account, right? Into And it doesn't need to be a bank account, but it needs to be a way to sort of spend money, right, in, in the real world without trusting somebody to take money out of the DAO uh, and actually spending it sort of externally. So I think those two parts are very important for DAOs to be, to, to sort of gain significant skill. That's one thing. And the second thing is just, again, this technology, in my view, smart contracts, DAOs, mind-blowing technology, huge opportunity, but still very, very relatively nascent, right? So if you think of programming, I mean, my father was a programmer in the army 30 years before I was a programmer in the army. He used to have these, you know, uh, uh, sheets where you do the holes. Hole punching and stick it in the slot. The, 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 the <laughs> punching holes. Um, when I was in the army, there was already like a, a sort of a, a rapid development vibrance. In my case, it was Delphi and C Sharp, I think, uh, early days. So, so we're going to see progress. But, but again, smart contracts and, and sort of blockchain development is very early stage to say, okay, let's sort of run, uh, you know, a billion dollar, $5 billion, $100 billion business on. You had basically the first exchange, you had the first DEX, you created effectively the first altcoins, and now it's all coming back full circle, right? All of these things now have become some of the most popular businesses for people to start. And now we're seeing somewhat of a return to building all those things back on Bitcoin again. So we talked about, obviously, you're doing colored coins 10 years ago, but it feels like you were literally 10 years ahead of the curve because now we have BRC20s and ordinals and people trying to effectively build everything that's on Ethereum and these other blockchains back on Bitcoin. Do you think that that is the right approach? Do you think that's necessary at this point now that we have these other protocols? Do you think that they can exist on you know any blockchain? I, I think it's not necessarily a, a winner takes all in, in the world of blockchain assets. I would generally segment it to three, but you can probably segment it also like split each three to another three, right? So you'll have nine and then sort of do that again and again and again. But generally, I, I'm very sort of passionate about real world assets. The And real world assets, that means it's gold and it, it's bonds, it's real estate, 
right? So how do we tokenize the world, the existing world into blockchain technology? The biggest gap there is how do you create that connection, right? So how do you, you create the physical to digital connection? And that physical to digital connection should be secured by either laws, regulation, courts, uh, a new type of, uh, you know, uh, uh, blockchains that somehow connect. And I think that that part, that, that missing part is, is still not here, right? So we still don't understand what's that missing part to be able to say, hey, I want to buy, I want to buy 1% of a real estate of an apartment in probably 20 different countries, it's better or 5% of from an apartment in 20 different countries, probably better than buying one apartment in one country, right? From an investment point of view. I think that's gonna take time because we need that connection between physical to digital, liquidity, et cetera. Then there's crypto assets, uh, the jungle uh, we all love and live in, right? Which is, I love it. It's experimentation. It's like BBS is in, in 98, 99. It's like everybody's experimenting. Everybody's building things. Things actually constantly break as well. You build it out. There's a protocol. It's getting hacked. Like it's, it's a, it's a, a, you know, it's a jungle of experimentation that actually for some parts of the world might eventually become the real world, right? Maybe, maybe. I think there's a slight chance developed world like the US and Europe are going to say, hey, you know what? Let's move the government blockchain on Ethereum or Bitcoin. But if you're, uh, you know, if you're a small country somewhere in uh, Africa or Latin America or Asia uh, and you don't necessarily have your own currency, by the way, a lot of countries still peg to the dollar and you say, hey, you know what? Let's let's peg it to Bitcoin and you gradually say, hey, you know what? Our voting system right now is, you know, based on these computers and the internet is still very centralized. Let's use DAO voting system, da, 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 da. So it might translate into sort of the real world, right? So if in the first part I said we're missing the physical to digital connection, the second part is this world, this jungle of what we call Bitcoin, Ethereum, the crypto market today. I think will continue to run much, much faster than anything related to traditional financial services. And there's a good chance that actually the smaller, more developing countries are going to win that race. And, and that's where BRC is, is super interesting, right? I, I think there's a good chance. I think we're very far from understanding where the end game is uh, of this entire ecosystem. I always say, I believe in... Uh, Bitcoin is king and Ethereum is queen uh, of crypto. And the king is the king and there's no doubt, right? If the, you know, you, the king dies, that's checkmate, right? Uh, and queens sometimes get replaced. Um, so there's still a chance that they get replaced. What you're asking me is, do I think the king, the king can also be the queen? Um, and, and I think the it has to be a layer two on top of it. There has to be some type of layer two on top of Bitcoin, the question is, what is that technology? So I looked at RSK in the past, at uh, um, MasterCoin, Colored Coin. Like I, I looked at a lot of those in the past, played a little bit all of those in the past. I, I think it makes sense. And then the question is, do you need that token? Do you need the Ethereum token uh, in order to 
accelerate that path of developing more things and de developing faster, yes or no. And again, I've always said, I don't know who is going to sort of, who's going who's gonna to win that uh, blockchain smart contract space. I am a big believer in Ethereum because I think they're, you know, very, very, very smart people that are still running the show. It's decentralized, but they're still running the show. And the third, which I have no idea how it's going to develop, is the whole NFT space, digital asset space. Like my kid for his birthday, like I ask him, what do you want for his... It's all digital. All my kids, all want, they just want me to buy them digital assets, right? They, they want to buy Robux. I talked to the largest... Um, like companies like LVMH, uh, uh, who's owned by the, I don't know, it's first or second richest person in the world. Depends on the week. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're investors in eToro, right? So the, 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 they invested in eToro a while back because they had gained interest in blockchain and Bitcoin. And when the NFT craze started, I was like, hey, guys, like, I really want to tell you about blockchain and how you can use that in luxury goods and in LVMH. And I came there all proud of myself. Hey, I'm an OG, I'll tell you about blockchain. And suddenly they were like, you know, we have our own blockchain already. We're already running, here's a game of like, they were every, like they were so engraved into, into it. And when we started digging up why they were like, because we know the gen alphas, right? Are not going to buy, they're gonna spend money, not on, physical like luxury goods but in potentially digital luxury goods and we need to understand how that actually works and that's what we saw with the nft craze like nike coming in adidas coming in puma coming in like all the big brands came into to the space and that's a third completely different the whole space of digital goods gaming nfts that's something completely you know uh, that's completely parallel tracked to all the rest and, and by the way, and, and I think that part will continuously surprise us I because agree. apes surprised the hell out of me, right? They still because surprise me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do. I 100% I, I agree with you. And we talked about, obviously, then DAOs and the creation and formation of capital in these ways and self-regulation. But you can't talk about crypto at this point without talking about Real regulation, right? Obviously, nation state regulation, everything that's happening. So you started eToro before there was even crypto. You were one of the first, obviously, to add Bitcoin and then to develop through these assets. What challenges do you have now in the current environment that maybe you couldn't have foreseen back then? I have to imagine it was pretty easy to add Bitcoin at that point because nobody was watching. Nobody's, maybe I'm wrong. You're saying no. I just mean from a regulatory perspective, but clearly not. But now, you can't just list all 20,000 assets, obviously, and allow them you know, for trading. How do you select what you do, where you do it, how you do it, when it's different in every single country, every single state? So first, you know, eToro has today 30 million registered users. We're regulated by 12 different regulators around the world. We are, you know, from Europe, UK, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, Australia, the US, um, uh, at some point, South Africa. I mean, so we're very widespread and we're across uh, sort of, you know, securities. So FX commodities and they see derivatives um, and then crypto. When we started crypto in Toro 2013-14, we explained, this is actually funny, 
So we were a regulated financial institution. We went to the regulator and we convinced the regulator this is a hard asset like gold. And I told them, listen, we are a broker dealer of securities, but what if a customer wants me now to buy them a boat? Can I, am I allowed to do that? Because they can send me money. I'm a broker, right? I'm allowed to broker deals, but these are not securities. And they were like, yeah, in theory, that's an ancillary service. You can do that. So I was like, okay, so that what that's what Bitcoin is. It's not a core business, but it's something new that we're adding into eToro. And they're like, that's fine as long as it's not becoming a significant part of the business. By the way, for my auditors, EY, back then, when we bought crypto, I had to convince them it's like chairs. Like it's like I'm buying a desk. They were like, how do we account for this? How do we make mark to market, et cetera? I'm like, hey, when I Property. buy like a chair to, to eToro, you don't ask me to, to mark to market it, right? So just let me hold it on the books. And, you know, it's I'm just holding it for, for, for eToro, just like I would buy a painting. You wouldn't mark to market it. And they were like, at some point, fine. And then everybody gets smarter as, as you progress, right? So EY, very fast sort of starts. I was going to say, Ernst & Young is heavily, heavily into crypto. Probably your fault, but like, they're one of the, I mean, as far as huge institutions they, go, they're as forward they, thinking as anyone. They're very, very smart. But like they became very smart um, around crypto. I have to, there are auditors today. They actually go to our cold storage, right? Not into the cold storage, but look at all the addresses. And then they ask us to move money from the addresses. So we prove, we the have reserves. to prove to them, right? That we control the addresses. They're like, you can't just give me an address. I need to know you control it. So move, move 0.1 here, 0.1 here. Show me your control. Um, they're very smart about saying, you know, money in crypto exchanges, we don't count that as money. Um, because if it's not, if it's an unregulated crypto exchange and you want us to audit you, you bring your money back into a cold storage. We audit that cold storage. Then you do, you can send it back for your inventory, which is smart, right? Which is what we've seen. I would though. be sweating every time. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, but so, so, and I'll tell you that from my perspective, you know, I'm a, like many people in crypto, I'm, I'm a libertarian. Um, you know, I, I used to really not believe in regulation. And I thought that regulators eventually just sort of stifle innovation and create harm to bring to smart people tools. Um, and, and to some extent, by the way, I, I you know, I, I still understand that logic that I had, which is why I think it's important we have this uh, uh, jungle of unregulated crypto, because I think for a person like myself, I should be able to do smart contracts, DeFi, because, you know, I can afford to lose. I can afford to make mistakes. Unfortunately, what I've learned through both crypto and, and generally financial services is if you don't have regulation, there's for some reason a tendency of bad, you know, of of. I don't know if it's necessarily the, the right way to sort of say, but for scammers to gain so much power and influence in an unregulated space, right? And, and then they scale and then they bring in the most vulnerable people 
into that space, right? Because these are the people who can't tell the difference between something that's a complete bullshit scam and something that potentially is real. Um, and, and I think, you know, and I've seen it so many times happening in both in crypto and financial services uh, that I, I, I now understand very well why for the protection of uh, uh, retail investors, you do need clearer and better regulations. Do I think they're doing a good job at it? The answer is no. And the reason for that, by the way, do I think central banks are doing a good job? The answer is no as well. And in both cases, the the it's very clear. Like I, I was invited to one of the largest central banks in the world to talk about uh, blockchain and crypto with like a team of people trying to understand how everything works, how will it work, CDBCs. And I'm like looking at, around the room and I'm asking, is there anyone here with a computer sciences background? And they're like, no. And like, I'm, I'm like, no one? Like, can you bring somebody that has computer sciences background? And they're like, no, this is a high level discussion. We don't invite them. So I'm like, if you, if, you know, if when regulators, when you, you'll have in government, in regulate, regulators, central banks, you'd have people who really understand the benefit of blockchain technology and how this can actually reduce risk in the entire system. Uh, how can this potentially enable faster, better clearing costs, et cetera, across the system? I think then we'll see smarter, better regulations because again, smart contracts are brilliant for regulating transactions in multi-party environment, much better than auditors, right? Um, I just think it's going to take time for that process to happen. And until then, in a lot of spaces, we're in you know high level of uncertainty. I think Europe and the UK are positioned well. I think the US right now a bit of a, a you know a bit of a shit show. Um, although some progress now with the courts over SEC. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, again, it's the uh, same as the, you know, same as uh, what we've seen on the Internet. No, I mean, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to gradually improve and change. Uh, and, you know, the where the jungle is is where you really see the where the innovation is. Um, and, and then where whatever gets regulated and cemented into regulation is where you'll see sort of uh, a significant scale. Yeah, we obviously we know where the extremely favorable regulators are for crypto. And then you kind of mentioned that the UK and Euro Europe are well positioned, talking about Mika. The United States obviously woefully behind, but I'm actually pretty optimistic. I, I know most people aren't, but I think that the pendulum is swinging back to your point with the courts pushing back against the SEC. But, but by the way, the way to think of this, which is maybe optimistic, I, I think the US is is the most similar thing I've ever seen to Bitcoin. Right, so bit so so and Ethereum is more like Europe. Europe, Europe are like, okay, we need to do something. Let's do rules, regulations. Let's do something. You know, but maybe we missed a couple of things. And 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 the U.S. is like, hey, we're not doing or no no new rules. Like we're not doing any new rules. Uh, let's just use what you know what it is. And then the system is you know it's very hard. Like the most magnificent thing about Bitcoin is it's you can't change it. Right, it's the like it's best thing and worst thing. Like you cannot change it. It's so hard to change Bitcoin. It's so it'll move slow, but you can trust that you'll still have twenty one 
million bitcoins, right? I trust in 50 years from today, I know there's still going to be same process, 21 million bitcoins, no doubt about it. Maybe, I'll, you know, Ethereum 50 years from today, maybe it has deflation, inflation, maybe, you know, uh, Vitalik is here, he's not here 50 years from today. Um, and it's the same. So, so I think that's a generally net positive for how the U.S. works, right? The fact that it, there is between regulate in every other country in the world, to the best of my knowledge, if a regulator says, hey, I think you can't do this, boom, you can't do this, nobody can do this. In the U.S., the regulator says, hey, you can't do this. And then the companies are like, oh, yeah, we're going to sue you, see you in court. And they actually win, by the way. Right. Yeah. People outside the U.S. are shocked that when a regulator and companies actually go into battle, right, to a lawsuit, the SEC can lose. Right. That doesn't happen in, in any like in they didn't any lose, they didn't used to lose very much, by the way, but they're losing a lot now. <laughs> but by the way, they've this is because I know this from traditional financial services, right, from the brokerage industry. It has always been the case that the SEC lawsuit sometimes loses, right? The difference is people didn't see it before. Like who would read? There, you know, I saw today Mario had, a, I don't know, 250,000 people listening into the Uniswap DeFi case. I'm his co-host on that. Yeah, that, I'm the, uh, Mario's <laughs> co-host. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's like, Crazy. Who, who do you, how many people do you think have ever read a case of, you know, uh, financial services, Wall Street financial services company versus the SEC that won? Where did it gain interest 10 years ago? Nobody. And the answer is like 15 people in the world. Now it's, I don't know, 150,000, maybe one and a half million people. So the scale of interest, and by the way, it's interesting because it's going to change how, how things actually work, right? Because for most people, they would assume if a regulator says, this is what I think. This is how things work. That's it. There's no way around. That's and that's how it works in most countries outside the U.S. And in the U.S., there's this very interesting sort of balance between courts, regulators, and Congress, right? Uh, um, uh, that that I think you know may, maybe we're seeing it potentially proving itself. So it is so uh, the United States and Bitcoin are both the grumpy old men who refuse to change. <laughs> what is Israel now? Where does Israel stand on the regulatory front? Because I know that it's also been quite difficult there at times. Um, it's like we're, 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 we're uh, I, I say we're like Doge. Um, <laughs> it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's it's it started as a joke, uh, but it might be interesting. No, there is no like uh, the thing is it's not. We are one of the largest fintech companies, uh, you know, it, top 100 in the world, so in the world, but like by far in Israel. And we're not even considering doing business in Israel because the regulators think like they are large regulators, uh, like this is a large opportunity, which it's not. It's a very small country with a very small business opportunity. Um, and there is no real balance between the regulator and courts. Like you can't do like it's the regulator said X, you need to do X, and that it that that's it. And in a lot of cases, X just doesn't make sense. You're like, who wrote this? Like they don't understand how this is supposed to work. So unfortunately, but but again, most Israelis, where do they trade? Do you think they trade with an Israel company? Like most Israelis 
don't trade with Israel, you know, they trade with offshore, right? Because they you can't enforce from Israel offshore. It's not an agile regulatory environment in Israel, like let's say UAE and Dubai. I think right. UAE and Dubai are very, uh, or, sorry, UAE and Singapore are very impressive sort of small ecosystems that do manage to sort of bring in innovators to try to be on the cutting edge to bring in companies, well, you know, Singapore and Asia, Abu Dhabi and the UAE in the Middle East, they they have been very successful in my view and sort of going into this and sort of looking at this from a 2030, even 2050 perspective to try to be on the cutting edge of the next wave of financial services. Yeah, when they say uh, just come in and talk to us, they actually mean it. I mean, imagine a company in the United States in crypto just showing up and getting a meeting with Gary Gensler. It would never happen. But in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, these places, almost anyone can go get a meeting with the top regulators and present to them an idea. We saw it. Listen, you and I were in Dubai in February. I think probably 20 or 30 people at that conference met with the Dubai regulator while we were there. Yeah. And and they're very open about it. They're like, we want to learn from you. How does this look in five or 10 years? Right. Uh, uh, and, and even like the, w- one of the few places around the world where I, where I talk to regulators and they're like, talk to us about 2030 and 2050. How does this look in 2050? And I'm like, ah, by 2050, like, I, I don't know how, how you asked me, where do I think things are in 2025? I'm like, ah, it's unclear. You're asking me about 2030. I'm like, I, I'm starting to feel I have a good answer to that. You're asking me about 2050. I know, you know, I have a I have a very sort of clear view of where this ecosystem is by the by 2050. Where is it? Give me that vision 2050. No, I I think it's again it's inevitable that every stock exchange in the world, right, uh, when they issue stocks, it's digital native assets that trade 24/7. Right. I think it's inevitable that these blockchains, whether the Abu Dhabi exchange and the Israel exchange, are they going to work on the same blockchain? Probably not. Um, but am I going to be as a fintech company if I am a member of both? Are these assets interoperable through interoperability of blockchains? Of course, no doubt about it. Right. So I can think of the use cases where I'm moving an asset from an Australian exchange to an Abu Dhabi exchange, where I'm holding a bond uh, of U.S. Treasury that's also a blockchain asset, and that U.S. Treasury is held sort of, you know, I can use that as a collateral to my uh, uh, Australian mining company, right? So, and then I can do these structures between all of these assets and multi-party agreements. So by 2050... The vision of everything around blockchain has will have been manifested into reality, right? So everything, most of the white papers you read on ICOs, and you said, "Wow, this is great!" and you invested in the ICO, and then the team disappeared and went to zero. That white paper is reality by 2050, right? So fractional fractional ownership of diamonds indexing of assets real estate like it's inevitable it's it's going to happen now but by 2050 do i know necessarily how to exactly make money out of it now no but if, if i'm a government and i understand it and i'm saying hey i want to invest because i want to be in the sort of 
cutting edge of, of this uh, technology that transforms the entire global financial services industry, that it makes a lot of sense to, to make those investments. Absolutely. And you're one of the few people who's been here through every one of these cycles. We talk about the four-year Bitcoin cycle based on the halving, but people seem to be surprised every single time we get to the bear market, and then we get to winter, and then interest sort of dissolves. Well, we had 2015, right? Four years later, 2019, absolutely miserable and silent. Well, here we are four years later, 2023. Every time Bitcoin price goes up, it immediately retraces. Every time we get good news, it doesn't matter. Google searches are at an all-time low. Is this just cyclical? Do we see another halving and go right into another major cycle a year from now? And what is the price of Bitcoin when that happens, if so? So it's funny you say 2015, 19, and 23, and I'm like... Uh, you say 11. I, 11. I, I, no, no. <laughs> I, I always look... Yeah, I, I look at like uh, 12, 13... Right, so the rally and the drop is where like 21, 22, 17, 18, right? So there's always a rally and the drop, a rally and the drop, a rally and the drop. And uh, uh, and, and there was a previous, uh, and, and, and by the way, funny stories, we launched Bitcoin. Uh, I was like, we have to launch it, we have to launch it. Running amok, I was just visiting Mark from Mount Gox from Japan. I came to Israel. I'm like, we should have all the infrastructure in place. It was the $1,200 when we launched Bitcoin. A month later, I think Mount Gox collapsed. It went to $150. Everybody around me were like, you, 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 like, you were driving us nuts about Bitcoin and now it's dead. Then second cycle came in. Uh, second cycle was Ethereum, right? So we launched Ethereum when it was like $4 on eToro. Um, and then suddenly you had like XRP and all the rest joining at the end of the year. XRP, I think launched on eToro, maybe it's like five cents, went all the way to like $3 in December. Everything was like shaking. That was a real, real rally. And then sort of everything collapsed in 2018. And again, everybody thought like, this is the end, this is the end. In both cases, Mount Gox was a hack that created fake leverage, right? So you had fake Bitcoins that yeah. basically pumped the price. In 2017, you had ICOs, which are also sort of pumping the price, right? So ICO, you, somebody's investing in an ICO, uh, and then you know there's only 1% circulating supply. The market cap is gazillion billion. That's basically leverage, right? So ICOs created that leverage in 2017. And then interestingly enough, in 2021, you had the combination of both. You had Mount Gox's several FTX, of those. Celsius, ra raise, raising, raising money as ICOs to leverage those ICOs as collateral to actually lend bit, right? So you had the combination of both and you had like multiple, multiple Mount Goxes that all did ICOs right? Uh, plus NFTs, right? So and now we're sort of at the down cycle was 2022. Now sort of we're in the, in the recovery phase. But think of where we are compared to where we were. You have BlackRock. You have the owner of BlackRock managing, I think, $10 trillion. $10 trillion. $10 trillion <laughs> talking about Bitcoin, launching a Bitcoin ETF. You have the owners of Fidelity investing in everything related to 
crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain, those are like BlackRock and Fidelity together is like they they manage most of the money in the world. Like that's a big, big thing. And it's the owners and the founders of these companies that are talking about Bitcoin. And then you have a Bitcoin uh, slash digital assets slash blockchain desk at Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Citibank, UB, like everywhere. Like it's like it's nothing like what it was in 2021. It's way beyond. So if 2024 is the year where things sort of repeat itself, it's the new 2000. Uh, it's it's by the way, remember it's the 2000, right? Because it's uh, 2000 was in 2020, yeah. So we had the having in 2020, so it would be 2024, would be kind of so, so. Remember, that means the rally is actually 2025, right? The right? end of 20 is you get six months after the you end, start, the end of 24 is where yeah. you start seeing this, yep, and you start gradually seeing something going to 50, then back 40. 70 uh, doesn't go to all-time high only Back when 50. it reaches all-time high which is somewhere probably end of next year only when it reaches all-time high then people are starting to like space that's where retail come back and then in theory the bull run should be actually 2025 the same as it was 2021 2017 and 2013 right that's the cycle um now there's a very famous saying saying history doesn't repeat itself, but it it sure damn rhymes. <laughs> so 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 I I would be surprised if we don't see a rally in 2025. I'd be surprised if we don't see by the end of 2025 Bitcoin above at least a hundred thousand dollars and Ethereum. So reaching basically at least king and queen of Bitcoin, sort of surpassing all times high. And then not only surpassing all time time, but to a point where you know you've surpassed it and it's not coming back again, which is what happened all the back cycles, right? It went all the way back to 15,000, but 15,000 was still sort of, you know, the, the averages sort of, they all- Yeah, and it was back to 20 quickly. And it was back to 20 quickly. And it took FTX yeah. to send it down there briefly. So yeah, yeah I, I, I tend to agree with that cycle. I mean, actually, I think 100,000 is relatively conservative. I mean, I think that's a reasonable- because in previous cycles, we've seen three, four X, the previous all time high each time, yeah. right? I mean, we went from 20 to 70, that's three and a half times. Yeah. But but if you look at the, uh, like a time series, every time it's less. And, and the reason is also, it's very logical, right? Because uh, going a hundred thousand is, you just think of the amount of money, right? Market so, cap. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the market, that's the point, the market. So the bigger it is, it's it's harder to sort of scale. Do I think eventually, like, and if the cycle continues, um, then it also becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So more people invest, but at some point, it's going to be very hard for me to. So I, I I've, I've almost never sold my crypto, um, and and like it's hard. Like I prefer spending dollars than spending Bitcoin. But at some point, for every person who bought crypto, it does like. To some extent, gets to a point versus his net worth. He's like, eh, I'm yeah, going to take a little something out. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to start something. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Well, listen, I, I'll take a hundred thousand for sure. And I know that we're running out of time here. I really appreciate you sharing uh, your story. Rarely do you get to talk to someone who was literally there for all of it. So I think you probably have more insight than anyone. Where can people follow you? And then, of course, check out everything that's happening at eToro. Uh, so follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, not as popular as you are, Scott. 
Um, but I, I share a lot of the stuff, uh, Better stories. Our, our great analysts, uh, Edi Toro. Uh, so happy to sort of always collaborate, join spaces, uh, Twitter talks, etc. Uh, or X, as you call it now. I, I still um, call it Twitter, man. I still call it Twitter. I can't, it's I can't hard, get there. It's hard to change. Yeah. Um, and uh, and on Etoro, just, you know, would love to always see, like, people can actually see my track record on Etoro. So I've been doing, like, awesome. 30% IRR on a roughly, like, for me, crypto is what bonds used to be for my father and grandfather, right? So my portfolio is roughly 50 50 stocks and crypto or now it's 60 stocks 40 crypto and you can see my entire track record and every single trade that i've done on etoro for the awesome. past 13 years and and you can see like all you can actually see all of the bear markets in crypto and how they get and how they that impacted my portfolio and even after a 50 percent loss in 2020, uh, uh, 2022, um, I'm still about 30% IRR for the last 12 years on eToro. So people can follow me on eToro, see what I'm actually doing in my personal portfolio, and see also what you know the other uh, millions of people on eToro are doing in their portfolios. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to bet that you're starting to buy the dip. Check All right, out. man. Thank you so much. I'm, 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 I'm now exactly trying to figure out whether I need to, to increase a bit for crypto versus stocks again. I don't give financial advice, but that's what I would be doing if it, <laughs> if it was me. And we got to get you on Twitter spaces with Mario, man. We haven't had you on yet Perfect. for Crypto Town Hall. You got to come I, join. I was, We're there. Mar- yeah, I was on Mario this week, actually, and would love to have you. Yeah, uh, you and- I think you're on his other one. So we do that Crypto Town Hall, the one you were mentioning oh, uh, where we were talking awesome. about. You just swap this morning. Every morning at 10, 15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, you literally have an open invitation. Anytime Ooh, you just have something to get off. That's a much better time. Every, Mario, every time I join Mario, it's like at night for you. 1 a.m. Yeah. in Israel. Yeah, no, you got to come join it. I'm going to send you a message offline afterwards to get you on there, man. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you very much, Scott.